Open up our Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 38 and 39, Jeremiah. You know, it being so warm tonight, I kind of remember a story I heard about uh, John Wesley one time. John Wesley one time was preaching in a church and he saw a guy at the very back of the church falling asleep, which can easily happen when, especially when it's warm. Personally, I like it a little frigid in a church building, keeps people awake a little bit better. So he's noticed somebody asleep in the back and Wesley kind of pauses and looks at the guy and then he starts yelling, fire, fire, fire. And, you know, the congregation was startled, of course, but the guy was shocked. He woke up, you know, and the guy wakes up and he, he yells out, fire, where, where? And Wesley said, this is John Wesley. He said, fire in hell for those who pre- sleep under the preaching of the word of God. <laughs> All right. So I'm not trying to be that severe tonight, but it is a funny story. Let's pray and prepare ourselves from God's, God's word on an evening that's kind of warm. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence in our midst. And we thank you, God, that, um, that, Lord, you have something to say to us through your word that stands forever. So we want to open up our hearts and pray that you would do a work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit now for us to receive everything you have to give. Do it in our midst, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 38, beginning now at verse 1. Now, Shephthathiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pashur, Jukal, the son of Shalemiah, and Pashur, the son of Malachiah, heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, He who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes over to the Chaldeans shall live. His life shall be as a prize to him, and he shall live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. These first few verses of Jeremiah chapter 38 introduce us to four princes of the kingdom of Judah. These were men who were part of the royal family. Maybe they were part of the aristocracy. Maybe they're just nobles. Maybe they were rulers in other some sense. But they were leaders under the king over the kingdom of Judah. These aristocrats had their own status and their own interest to protect as the Babylonians surrounded the city of Jerusalem preparing to conquer it. They didn't like the preaching of Jeremiah the prophet. Because what was Jeremiah the prophet telling them? Jeremiah the prophet was telling the whole city, if you remain in this city, you are going to die by the sword. Your only salvation rests in surrendering to the Babylonians. If you don't surrender to them, there's a good chance that you're going to be killed. There's safety in surrender to the Babylonians. Now, if you were trying to organize the people of the city of Jerusalem to make a bold, courageous, last stand against the Babylonians, how would you feel about a prophet preaching to them, telling them, surrender right now? You wouldn't like it very much, would you? And these four princes of the kingdom of Judah didn't like it very much. Well, let's look at what happens, verse 4. Therefore the princes said to the king, please let this man be put to death, for he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man does not seek the welfare of this people, but their harm. Then Zedekiah the king said, look, he's in your hand. 
for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malachiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the dungeon, there was no water, but mire. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. These four princes didn't like the preaching of Jeremiah. The Babylonian army surrounded the city of Jerusalem. It was a crisis time in the city, no doubt. They felt that Jeremiah was undermining the morale of the whole city. So what did they do? They went to King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah generally liked Jeremiah, but he had a bigger problem. His bigger problem was that he was fundamentally a weak man. He was very easily swayed and stirred by the strong opinions of other people. So when the princes came and said, did you see this in verse four? Please let this man be put to death. What did King Zedekiah do? Well, the King Zedekiah would agree to it. Notice their argument here in verse four. They said, this man does not seek the welfare of this people, but their harm. I want you to think about that for a moment. What did they accuse Jeremiah of? They accused Jeremiah of not caring about the people of Jerusalem, but wanting to do them harm. You know what's fascinating about that? It is exactly opposite to the truth. Is that not true? Jeremiah loved the people of Jerusalem. Jeremiah ached over every prophecy of doom that he had to give forth. Jeremiah desperately wanted to save the city of Jerusalem and rescue as many people from the judgment that was certain to come. Jeremiah did everything he did out of love for the people of Jerusalem. Oh, no doubt there was a lot of frustration with those hardened sinners, but there was love. Matter of fact, if there were people who did not care about the welfare of the people of Jerusalem... It was those four princes. They were determined to make a stand to the last man in the city of Jerusalem in what God and his prophet Jeremiah knew would be an absolutely futile battle. What Jeremiah and God knew was that there was no way, no way they were gonna defeat the Babylonians. No way. And if this was true, The honorable, the smart, and the loving thing was to surrender under the best terms that you could. I just find this fascinating, though, that sometimes we, and I'll make it more specific, sometimes God's servants are accused of exactly the opposite of what they are. Moses was a remarkably humble man, according to Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. But even Moses was accused of pride. Job was a righteous man, but his friends accused him of great sin. Jesus was the spotless son of God, but he was accused of being demon possessed. Friends, sometimes men and women of God, even as they conduct the work that God has given them to do, sometimes they are accused of exactly the opposite of what is true. And that was the case with Jeremiah. What did the weak king Zedekiah say? Look at verse five. Look, he's in your hand. Zedekiah would not take the courage to stand up to the princes of Judah and he allowed them to do to Jeremiah as they pleased. He knew that the princes of Judah were wrong. 
He knew that their accusations against Jeremiah were not correct, but he was such a weak man that he was easily swayed by strong opinions around him. Therefore, they lowered Jeremiah down into a dungeon-like pit where Jeremiah sank in the mire. Before we describe that pit, I just want us to consider for a moment the weakness of Zedekiah. I like what Alexander McLaren said. He said this, Zedekiah is one more instance of the evil which may come from a weak character and of evil which may fall on it. He had good impulses, but he could not hold his own against the bad men around him. Let me be very straightforward with you. And I'll speak to you as a son or a daughter of God. There will be people in your life who will want to influence you to evil. There will be. Now, they may mean well. Maybe their intention is good, but you will experience it where men and women around you will intend to influence you for evil. You must have the strength of character, God giving you strength to resist it. If you are fundamentally a weak man or a weak woman, you will be pushed by whatever happens by those people who want to influence you to evil. You see, it seems that instead of having a backbone, Zedekiah had a wishbone. And he wished to just please all the people around him. Matter of fact, I like what one commentator said. He said, Jeremiah, excuse me, Zedekiah seemed to graduate from the Pontius Pilate School of Management. Isn't there, aren't they of the same type? Pontius Pilate pushed by men who were influencing him in a way that they shouldn't to do something that he knew was wrong and evil. Now listen, it's easy for someone like me to stand back and judge Zedekiah, to sort of cluck my tongue in a tisk tisk Zedekiah. Shouldn't you have the strength? But let me tell you something. Many of us have the same weakness that Zedekiah has. It's just not revealed because we're not in the same position that Zedekiah held. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to pray and be men and women of backbone, men and women of strength who will not be influenced to do evil just because other people would like us to do so. So what did they do? Look at verse 6. They let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now, I want you to think about that. That statement right there in verse 6 is very revealing. What was the intention of these princes of Judah? Verse 4 tells you their intention was to kill Jeremiah. That's what they wanted to do. Does everybody understand that? Then why did they lower him down into the pit by ropes? If you want to kill the guy, why not just push him? Aha, it's more complicated than that. First of all, understand the kind of condition that they put him down into. What they did undoubtedly was push him down into a cistern. Do you understand what a cistern is? A cistern, very common. Most homes in Jerusalem at that time had their own cisterns. This is a carved out water reservoir. 
It usually has a small opening, and then it opens up like a pear or a bulb underneath. And in that day, they were usually carefully maintained and cemented or plastered on the inside so that you could keep a water supply either from rainfall or a nearby stream, and that that house could have its own water supply in a fairly arid land in the city of Jerusalem. What they did was they took a cistern that was pretty much empty of water, but just had mud or mire or sludge at the bottom. But they didn't just push Jeremiah down into it. Why? Most likely, these princes of Judah did not want to be guilty of bloodshed. You see, they knew the verses in the Old Testament that say it's a sin to shed the blood of an innocent man. So what did they say? They said, listen, we'll find a way to kill Jeremiah without actually opening a wound on him and shedding his blood. We will lower him by ropes down into the cistern and there he will die of famine. There he will die of exposure. There he will die of disease, but he won't die of some wound and we won't be guilty of bloodshed. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. God sees through those phony baloney evasions that we try to make. When we try to make evasions for our sin, God sees right through it. Oh, no, no, you see, I I didn't really break the law of God on a technicality. God sees right through it. If you think you can be preserved from that, you're just wrong. Now, let me me say something, and I I don't mean to be too forward. I, I, I don't know why I feel like I should point this out right now, but I, I just feel that I should. Sexual immorality between a man and a woman goes beyond just actual sexual intercourse. And there are many people who think that there are sexual acts short of that that is okay in the sight of God just as long as it's not actual sexual intercourse. Don't you see that this is the same reasoning as here? We didn't actually open up a wound, so we're okay. We're technically not breaking the law, even though we're practicing a sex act, but it's not the same. Ladies and I just want you to know, I just want you to be sensitive and let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. God sees through these evasions. And if you're guilty of it, don't condemn yourself. Run to a savior. You have a savior to forgive you. Jesus Christ made provision of this. If anyone sins, Jesus, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But don't, don't find evasions in your sin by defining it by technicalities. That's exactly what these rulers were trying to do. Now, verse seven. Now, Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. When the king was sitting at the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went out of the king's house and spoke to the king saying, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is. For there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Take from here 30 men with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. 
So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king under the treasury and took from there old clothes and old rags and let them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. And they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the dungeon. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. Can you picture Jeremiah down in the cistern? dark it's cold there's bugs maybe little animals down there there's a stench of disease he's stomach deep in muck in mire in mud nothing to eat nothing to drink he's very logically thinking i'm probably gonna die down here that was fully the intention what he didn't know that God had prompted a man, a man named Ebed-Melech. Now this man's a fascinating man. Did you notice something about this man? Look at what verse 7 says. He describes him as an Ethiopian. In other words, he was from either what we would call today Ethiopia or Sudan. He was either a, a black man or probably very tall of that sort of nature. And he was one of the eunuchs. God sent this foreigner to help Jeremiah and to appeal to the king on the prophet's behalf. This is what I want you to understand. He was a foreigner, and he may have been a literal eunuch. The ancient Hebrew term that's translated eunuch there, it was actually used for people who were not literally castrated. Because it was sometimes used for people who were just court officials, even though they were not castrated. It was a term that kind of changed its meaning over time. Maybe he was literally castrated, maybe not. But he was a court official, and he was a foreigner. If he was literally castrated, it was even more reason, but it was also reason enough just because he was a foreigner. He was not allowed in the house of God to participate in the worship of Israel. Now, you know what I just picture? I picture those four princes going up to the temple and participating in some temple ceremony. All happy, you know, we didn't shed Jeremiah's blood. We're good. And here's this foreigner who couldn't have access to the temple. He was a foreigner and perhaps he was literally castrated, literally a eunuch. He didn't have that access. And you know what God says to him? You, I approve. You, I'm going to honor. We're going to see more about Ebed-Melech before we go. By the way, do you know what his name means? His name means servant of the king. It may not even have been his actual name. Maybe it was a description of the man. Servant of the king. But, but he came to King Zedekiah. He said, Zedekiah, we got to rescue this man. He's going to die in there. Now, Zedekiah, weak as he is, he was swayed by the strong opinion to do evil. Now he's swayed by the strong opinion to do right. Okay, Ebed-Melech, you say we should rescue him? Let's rescue him. Matter of fact, let's send 30 men with you. Now, why did they need 30 men to pull up one old skinny man from a pit? Well, they probably didn't need 30 men to pull him up from the pit. But they needed those men as bodyguards in case anybody like these four princes tried to stop them in their work. So they sent 40 men and they pulled him out of the pit and they were so kind to him. Look at there in verse 12. Please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits. It's going to be uncomfortable. We're going to rescue and we're going to rescue in a way that's kind of comfortable. We don't want the rope digging into your frail, bony skin. You're an old man and you're emaciated from malnutrition. And so they rescued him up. They literally lifted him up out of the mire and brought him up and remained in the court of the prison. Now look at what happens in verse 14. 
Then Zedekiah the king sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance of the house of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you something. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I declare it to you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you advice, you will not listen to me. So Zedekiah the king swore secretly to Jeremiah saying, as the Lord lives who has made our very souls, I will not put you to death, nor will I give you into the hand of these men who seek your life. Didn't we see this in last chapter, chapter 37? Jeremiah is delivered by an act of the king and the king says, oh, now I want a secret audience with you, Jeremiah. Can we talk about this? Now, Jeremiah has been down this road before. He goes, king, listen, we did this before. I gave you a word. You didn't like it. You put me into prison. Number one, it's just going to put me in prison again, back to that pit. Number two, you're not going to listen. What good is this king? I like what Zedekiah did. He says, I swear to you, as the Lord lives, who made our very souls, I will not not put you to death. Now, was Zedekiah a reliable man with an oath? Not one bit. Matter of fact, don't you know that oftentimes it's the people who swear the most strongly who are the least reliable in keeping their word? That was Zedekiah. But in any regard, Jeremiah says, okay, here, I'll give you a word. Zedekiah, you want your word? Here we go. Verse 17. Here's your final word. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to picture this. This was God's final word to Zedekiah. Last one. I think it's amazing. Verse 17. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you surely surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, Then your soul shall live. This city shall not be burned with fire and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans. They shall burn it with fire and you shall not escape from their hand. Look at verse 17 again. If you surely surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then your soul shall live. Now, first of all, do we understand this was not a new word to Zedekiah? Did Jeremiah have a new word for him? Nope. But I will say there is something new about this. Matter of fact, not just new, but amazing. At this last minute, God is still offering mercy to Zedekiah. Now, please understand, it's not the kind of mercy that says, Zedekiah, if you repent, I'll call the Babylonians off. No way. That is determined It's doomed. There's no turning back. Zedekiah, the Babylonians are going to conquer the city. No ifs, ands, or buts. But I'll tell you something. Here's God's mercy in it. If you surrender right now, Zedekiah, what happened? The city will be spared. You will live and your house will be spared. If you don't, destruction will come to you, to the city, and to your household. Ladies and gentlemen, can we just for a moment marvel at the graciousness of God. If you were God over all these years, pleading with, speaking to, begging to King Zedekiah, wouldn't you by now just saying, that's it, that's enough, you're gone. Forget it, mister, forget it. 
But even at this late hour, he's still offering him patience and mercy. Zedekiah, surrender. If you surrender right now, if you surrender, your soul shall live. If you surrender, this city shall not be burned with fire. If you surrender, your house will live. Your wives, your children, your royal family will largely be spared from death. Matter of fact, I like how he says it. Look at it in verse 17. If you surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, earlier in the chapter... Did not Zedekiah surrender to the princes of Judah and agree to put Jeremiah in the pit and try to kill him? It's like, look, you've shown you're pretty good at surrendering to princes. Instead of surrendering to the princes of Judah, surrender now to the princes of Babylon and it'll go well with you. There will be mercy in the midst of it. Verse 17, this city shall not be burned with fire. Ladies and gentlemen, do you understand something here? The fate of a city rested on one man. It was within the power of Zedekiah to either surrender to God and do what God told him to do or to harden his heart and the destruction of Jerusalem hung in the balance. This is staggering. We sometimes rarely appreciate the difference one man or one woman can make by simply being faithful to God and surrendering to God in his purpose. Jerusalem will be absolutely destroyed in a catastrophe or it'll simply be conquered and occupied by the Babylonians. Zedekiah, it's up to you. You pick. I find that staggering. Now look at Zedekiah's response, verse 19. And Zedekiah the king said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews who have defected to the Chaldeans lest they deliver me into their hand and they abuse me. But Jeremiah said, they shall not deliver you. Please obey the voice of the Lord, which I speak to you. So shall it be well with you and your soul shall live. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the word that the Lord has shown me. Now behold, all the women who are left in the king of Judah's house shall be surrendered to the king of Babylon's princes. And those women shall say, your close friends have set upon you and prevailed against you. Your feet have sunk in the mire and they have turned away again. So shall surrender all your wives and children to the the Chaldeans. You shall not escape from their hand, but shall be taken by the the hand of the king of Babylon, and you shall cause this city to be burned with fire. O oh, Zedekiah, you pitifully weak man. There you are with your opportunity, lives and the fate of a city hang in your balance. You can't stop the Babylonians from conquering, but you can rescue the city, your own household. You can rescue your own life. This is what you have to do. Just surrender now. Do what God tells you to do. And what do you say? Well, I'm afraid people say bad things about me. Literally, this is what he says. I'm afraid that those who have already defected to the Babylonians will look at me and say, huh, now you defect when you told us not to defect before? Well, told you so. You should have done it a long time ago. Because one man didn't want to hear, I told you so. Because he was afraid of that. He's going to let his family, he's going to let his city, he's going to let his honor be burned with fire. Friends, the only abuse he had to fear from those people who had defected was mocking and contempt from the people who had already surrendered. That's why Jeremiah pled with him. Verse 20, please obey the voice of the Lord. It's the safest thing for you to do. Do you understand this, brothers and sisters? 
that the safest place for you to be is in radical obedience to God? You think it's dangerous to obey God? Listen, I'll agree. Sometimes it's risky to obey God. I'll admit it. But it's not nearly as risky as it is to harden your heart in disobedience to him. Do you think you're playing it safe, Zedekiah? You're a madman. No, it's not just going to hurt you. But they shall surrender all your wives and children to the Chaldeans. And you're afraid of the others mocking you, those who have already defected. Listen, your wives and children are going to sing a song of taunting, mocking to you when they are taken. And that's why they say, verse 23, they shall surrender all your wives and children to the Chaldeans and you shall cause this city to be burned with fire. Friends, we cannot help but be impressed, number one, by the weakness and the cowardice of Zedekiah. But aren't you amazed at the courage and strength of Jeremiah? To the end, he faithfully delivers God's word. To the end, he brings it to the king and does not fear for his own life. Verse 24. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, let no one know of these words and they shall not die. Excuse me, and you shall not die. But if the princes hear that I've talked with you and they come and say to you, declare it to us now what you have said to the king and also what the king has said to you, do not hide it from us and we will not put you to death. Then you shall say to them, I presented my request before the king that he would not make me return to Jonathan's house to die there. Then all the princes came to Jeremiah and asked him and he told them according to all the words that the king had commanded. So they stopped speaking with him for the conversation had not been heard. Now Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison until the day that Jerusalem was taken and he was there when Jerusalem was taken. Ladies and gentlemen, can you just allow this to shock you for a moment? The fate of a city hangs in the balance on one man's obedience. And what is his concern? Don't tell anybody about our conversation. Don't be a tattletale now, Jeremiah. I don't want anybody to really know what the word of the Lord is towards me. I need you to keep this under wraps. Don't tell, please. Don't tell on me. He sounds like a child. And in his weakness, that's what he is. All I can do is give us an exhortation together. And I'll speak this to myself. We need a continued renewal and revival of Christians who will be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Who will not be like reeds waving in the wind. Whatever the culture blows, that's what we'll wave towards. But we'll say, no, we will be men and women of strength. God helping us. And if we have to bear some abuse from the world around us, okay, that's the price we'll pay. We will pay the price where we must for being strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. But friends, it should terrify me and it should terrify you that we would have the weakness of a man like Zedekiah. Lord, may it never be so among us. Now chapter 39. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the 10th month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and all his army came up against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the 11th year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the city was penetrated. Then all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle gate, Nergal Shazer, Samgar Nebo, Sarasim, Rabasars, Nagal Sarzer, 
Rabmag, and with the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar and king of Babylon, his own army, came against Jerusalem and besieged it. The siege lasted more than a year. It had a slight respite when the Babylonian army had to leave and, and meet the army of the Egyptians, and the Egyptians fled the battle. But then they came back and they conquered it. And just as was prophesied, the city fell. The besieged city was surrounded, preventing all trade and business from entering or leaving the city. And eventually the starving population surrendered or the defenses of the city gave way and the surrounding army poured into the weakened city. Let me read something to you from Lamentations chapter 4. Some selected verses. I'm going to read these verses to you, and I just want you to picture the scene in the city of Jerusalem described by Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations when the siege was at its worst. If you want to add to the imagination of this, you can close your eyes as long as you promise them to open them when I'm done reading this passage. Ready? The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those who were brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. For these pine away, stricken for the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has fulfilled his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion and it has devoured all its foundations. Still, our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save us. They tracked our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near. Our days were over for our end had come. And the city was penetrated, verse 2. Those defenses around the walls of Jerusalem, they couldn't stand forever. And they broke through. And the Babylonian army started to pour into Jerusalem. The Egyptians did not rescue Judah and the Lord did not miraculously deliver them as he did with the Assyrian army about 130 years before. The false prophets who promised deliverance, they were wrong. Jeremiah was right. Let me read to you from Josephus describing the battle. The battering ram took its last run at the walls Darts from the enemy's siege mounds arched into the midnight sky and struck their mark in flames. They shot flaming arrows. Famine had already claimed many lives inside the walls. Five Babylonian princes marched through the streets of Jerusalem, their faces illuminated by the flames of destruction. That's what the Jewish historian Josephus wrote. Verse 3, And then all the princes of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. It's like conquering Washington, D.C., walking into the Oval Office and making it your own. That's what they did to Jerusalem. Verse 4. 
So it was when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the men of war saw them, that they fled and went out of the city by night, by way of the king's garden, by the gate between the two walls. And he went out by the way of the plain. But the Chaldean army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had captured him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced judgment on him. The Babylonian army starts pouring into the city. Not even Zedekiah can possibly believe that there's any hope anymore. So what does he do? Does he courageously stand with his city and with his people and say, if this is the end, I will be there? Are you kidding me? He's like, run for the hills. And so using secret passageway and the covenant of night, they sneak out the city and miracle of miracles, they make it out of the city. Then they head for the hills and they go by way of Jericho because he figures if I can just get across the Jordan River, I can make it to Egypt and be safe. So they make the pass over the hills. They make it all the way to the plain of Jericho. They get some 15 miles from the city of Jerusalem and they're thinking, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. And then what does it say? The Babylonian army caught up to them on the plains of Jericho. Friends, do you realize they almost made it. It would have been better if he would have just been caught at the walls of Jerusalem. But the agony was even more exquisite because I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I am going to escape not only the Babylonian army. I'm going to escape the judgment of God that Jeremiah promised. I'm going to make it. And then God captured him. Friends, it's not going to work. You're not going to outrun God. Did you know Ezekiel prophesied this? Before it ever went down, this is what Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 12 says. And the prince who is among them shall bear his belongings on the shoulder at twilight and go out. They shall dig through the wall to carry them out through it. He shall cover his face so that he cannot see the ground with his eyes. He made it out. He made it all the way to the plains of Jericho. But what happened? Look at verse 13. Let me show it to you. Ezekiel chapter 12. I will also spread my net over him and he shall be caught in my snare. Friends, it wasn't the Babylonian army that caught Zedekiah. It was the Lord. He caught him and took him to King Nebuchadnezzar. Many times before it had been prophesied, Zedekiah, you're gonna face Nebuchadnezzar face to face, this king whom you have rebelled against. What's going to happen? Verse 6. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah. The king of Babylon also killed all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. And the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the houses of the people with fire and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away captive to Babylon the remnant of the people who remained in the city and those who defected with him, with the rest of the people who remained. But Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah the poor people who had nothing and gave them the vineyards and the field at the same time. Time to give account, Zedekiah. You got to face the king you rebelled against face to face with Nebuchadnezzar. And you know what Nebuchadnezzar did? The first thing he did was he murdered the sons of Zedekiah before his own eyes. 
Yes, he killed all the nobles of Judah too. But he killed the sons of Zedekiah before his own eyes. And then, and friends, the Assyrian kings, we have inscriptions of this, of the Assyrian kings doing this personally. So I don't know if the Babylonian kings as well, but it may be in the ancient world that personally Nebuchadnezzar came and gouged out the eyes of Zedekiah. So that the last thing he saw was his own sons murdered before his eyes. They gentlemen, that's cold. That is rough justice. But it belongs to a man who could have had it all different if he had the courage to obey God at that critical moment. Friends, there's a very mysterious promise in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 13. Let me read this to you. God says, I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. Can you imagine people thinking, well, my, what a strange prophecy. God's going to take him to Babylon and he's going to die there, but he'll never see it. How could that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. Because he went there with two gouged out eyes and he never saw it, but he died there. The Chaldeans burned down the king's house and the houses of the people with fire. They broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And then Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away captives to Babylon, the remnant of the people who remained. Two things I want you to think about. Number one, if you were a Babylonian, what would you think at this time? I'll tell you what you would think. You would think our God, the Babylonian God Nebo, that's what they called their God. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzradan, it all comes from the God Nebo. You would think that your God Nebo is greater than Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, right? Didn't he just whoop Yahweh and his kingdom? you would be very wrong because the only reason your army was able to do what it did was because Yahweh called it forth to judge and to punish his people. That's number one. Number two, it happened just as God said. God said that disaster would come from the north. It came. God said that a strange foreign nation would attack It did. God said that Jerusalem would be surrounded and besieged. It happened. God said that there would be famine in the land. It happened. God said that the whole land would be laid waste. It happened. God said that nations and kingdoms would be torn down. It happened. God said that death would enter the city. It happened. God said that enemy kings would sit at the gates of Jerusalem. It happened. God said that the city would be burned. It happened. God said that the people would be taken into exile. It happened. God's word comes to pass. And the prophet was vindicated and the false prophets were put to shame. It's not the end of the chapter. Thank the Lord. God gives us two glimmers of grace here at the end of the chapter. Don't we need a little bit of grace right here? Let's take two glimmers of grace, shall we? Verse 11. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, saying, take him and look after him and do him no harm. But do to him just as he says to you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, sent to Nabushabashan, Rabbisaras, Negel Shazarov, Rabmog, and all the king of Babylon's chief officers. Then they sent someone to take Jeremiah from the court of the prison and committed him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home 
So he dwelt among the people. What's going to happen to Jeremiah? Well, listen, there was a lot of people in Judah who didn't like Jeremiah, but I'll tell you one guy who did like him, Nebuchadnezzar. Because Jeremiah had been preaching for a long time, surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Look at verse 12. Take him and look after him and do him no harm. Take care of this guy. Make sure he's okay. And so at the end of the story, or at least at the end of this chapter, it's not the end of the whole story of Jeremiah. At the end of this chapter, so he dwelt among the people. Jeremiah was no longer imprisoned. He was set free and he lived among the exiles until that whole thing was. things. You understand that when they sent all these people off at exile, it didn't happen in a week. It took months to process them, to figure out where they were going, who was going to take them. So during that time, Jeremiah dwelt among the people. That's one glimmer of grace. A second final glimmer of grace. Look at verse 15. Meanwhile, the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison saying, go and speak to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good. And they shall be performed in that day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord. And you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely deliver you and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. God has a special word for that man, Ebed-Melech. He's a foreigner. He's not even a Jew by birth. And he's quite possibly, literally, a eunuch. We can't tell for sure whether he was just an officer of the court or whether he was an actual eunuch. We don't know. But God took this man who would be an outcast to the temple and its rituals. And you know what he said to him? He said, the city's going to be conquered, but I'm going to take care of you. Verse 17, I will deliver you in that day. The destruction of Jerusalem is certain. But you, look at it there in verse 18. Because you have put your trust in me, I will deliver you. Isn't that beautiful? Shows me, number one, you didn't have to be a famous prophet named Jeremiah to get a glimmer of grace from God. God did it for anybody who trusted in him. Secondly, notice this. Ebed-Melech did some amazing stuff. Listen, um, God says nothing about how heroic he was, how compassionate he was, how resourceful he was. All of those things were outstanding. But you know what God noted in Ebed-Melech? He trusts in me because that was the source of his compassion, the source of his courage, the source of his resourcefulness. You see, isn't it beautiful that on the eve of the fall of Jerusalem, God makes a beautiful promise to a heathen who trusts in him. It's sort of a glimmer of grace that we have, really almost a prophecy of what God would do under the new covenant, bringing other heathen Gentiles into his kingdom on the basis of trust in Yahweh and his Messiah. It's a fair discussion for us to have. Is America and the Western world ripe for judgment? Are we in the same place as Jerusalem? We could have a fascinating discussion about that. But if we were to say that it is the case, ladies and gentlemen, the safest place for you and I to be is with a radical trust in Yahweh and his Messiah because we can be the Ebed-Melechs who courageously stand 
even in corrupt times, and see God's work and will done, even as things crumble around us. We can do good in Jesus' name in the midst of it. Father, that's my prayer. My prayer is that you would raise up among us an army of Ebed Melechs, of people, Lord, who trust in Jesus Christ, who trust in Yahweh and his Messiah, and do good in Jesus' name, who have the courage to stand up to evil. Help us, Lord. We need your help to do this. But Lord, all over again, we want to proclaim that we want to be those people who put our trust in you. We disavow any trust in ourselves and we put it in you. God, guard us from the weakness of a Zedekiah and build us up in the strength of the true followers of Yahweh and his Messiah, Jesus Christ. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.